Hi there, I'm Sheena and this is the Lesbian Review Podcast. This podcast is a spin-off of the popular review site thelesbianreview.com, where we review the best books, movies and music with leading lesbian, bi or queer women. The goal of this podcast is to bring you closer to the best queer media and give you access to interviews with people who are behind the scenes in creating it. Today I'm joined by the author Karelia Stetswaters. Karelia, I really hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Perfect. I know the, the American A is often different to the South African A. <laughs> no, it sounds great. Um, okay, so we're here to talk about sex. It's it's a controversial but interesting and exciting topic. Please, if you are underage, stop listening because we are talking about sex and you're not supposed to be listening to this. All right, Karelia, you have a New Year's resolution. Do you want to tell us about that? Yes, yeah, so uh, my New Year's resolution is to... Uh, share cliteracy with the world. Uh, I read a fabulous book uh, this uh, this winter season, Becoming Cliterate, The Pleasure Gap and Why It Matters by Dr. Lori Mintz. Uh, and it's uh, just an absolute must read for everyone. <clears throat> it's about how our society's focus on penetration has kind of ruined sex for women, has taken all the focus off the clitoris, the way women most reliably achieve pleasure and orgasm, and focused on the penis and penetration, right down to the fact that we often refer to the female sex genitals as the vagina, when in fact the vagina is the internal canal, the part that coincidentally brings pleasure to men. So Dr. Laurie Mintz tries to dispel these myths about penetration being the focus of sex. And uh, at the end of her book, she asks her readers to take the clitoracy pledge uh, that they are going to help educate women and men about women's bodies and women's pleasure. And this was something I was already passionate about as a lesbian romance writer. But she really reaffirmed my desire to use romance to help women learn more about their bodies and celebrate their sexuality. I think it's a fantastic thing, and you're so 100% right that penetration is the focus of a lot of heterosexual, particularly sex scenes, even in literature. Um, And that's got to stop. You've got some interesting... uh, What do you call these things? You've got some interesting stats that you talk about in your newsletter you say and this is i think from mince's book you say that research shows that penetration without clitoral stimulation leads to an orgasm in only four percent of the female population that is a tiny tiny percentage yeah and uh, studies vary um some studies will go as far as to say 30 percent of women can come without clitoral or can come from penetration But those studies are vague in that they don't explore whether that is penetration with clitoral stimulation or just pure penetration with no interaction with the clitoris. Mintz did some of her own research and asked women uh, how they come uh, most reliably. And only 4% said from penetration alone. But uh, no matter what statistic you look at, penetration is really not women's route to orgasm. 
right. So it can aid sex and it can feel nice and and be part of the package, but it's not necessarily the thing that's ultimately going to cause the most pleasure for women. Absolutely. That's right. And one of the problems that Mintz highlights that I think I can really uh, help uh, dispel for heterosexual readers of lesbian romance is this idea that uh, anything involving the clitoris is basically the foreplay. You know, oral sex is foreplay, uh, touching the clitoris is foreplay. It's this thing that you do before the main course, uh, so to speak. Um, it's this little add-on bonus. And, but you haven't had sex unless there's been penetration. So I think uh, I really want to share the word with women and with men too, that uh, that's not the case at all. And the clitoris needs to get just as much attention as the penis. Imagining a sex scene or a sex for two people where the woman does not get her clitoris stimulated, but somehow comes anyways, is rather like imagining a sex scene where nothing touches the man's penis, but he still has an orgasm. So possible, maybe, but kind of odd and certainly not a blueprint for great sex. Well, that's true. So you say at the end of the book, there's a pledge that you take, and that's to to aid other people by educating them on how sex works for women. So so you've started this by starting off with a newsletter and now you're doing a podcast. So what else are you doing around that? Well, my big push is to get this message to the the mainstream readership of romance. And by mainstream, I mean heterosexual or uh, women who predominantly have sex with men. So uh, Mince's book says that women who have sex with women have orgasms more reliably and more frequently than women who have sex with men. Uh, just one mm-hmm. more reason to play for our team. But <laughs> if you're not lucky enough to uh, be of that persuasion, the, I, I think it's really important for women to see uh, and read narratives that are not focused on the penis. So my next big push is to really try to reach that mainstream market. I'm going to Romance Writers of America for the first time uh, this year. I've always been intimidated. That's the big uh, romance conference uh, in the United States, and it is predominantly heterosexual writers. And I've always uh, gone to the uh, the queer conferences, and just you know, I loved them so much fun. But it's time to time to branch out, time to put on my big girl pants and go to really the largest show in my genre. And I've also put in a conference proposal for a short presentation um, on what heterosexual romance writers can learn from lesbian sex when it comes to writing good sex scenes. And uh, I don't think I've ever been more excited about a conference proposal. Uh, I've dreamed, dreamt about it twice uh, that I got turned down. So that must mean that I, I really want it. Um, I haven't heard back yet. I don't, uh, don't know quite what um, time frame they're on for conference proposals. Well, that's pretty cool. So you're going to stand up in front of a whole bunch of heterosexual, predominantly romance authors and tell them (laughs) that lesbian sex is the way to go. I like this plan. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm I'm oversimplifying. I just, I get very enthusiastic about lesbian romance. Um, Well, anything lesbian, really. I, I think the world can benefit more from reading lesbian romance than anything else. There's a 
a kindness and a generosity in lesbian fiction that isn't there in mainstream? I think there's something very, uh, very sweet and tender and even, even in um, lesbian sex scenes that have more, um, more graphic or BDSM content, uh, there's a attention to trust and consent. Not to say that there's there are not some some scenes that don't have it. I have I have a fabulous quote for you. Yes, I am going to put one hundred percent of my bet on this was not actually written by a lesbian, but uh, I was. <laughs> My wife likes to curate interesting content online. When she sees something she thinks I might be interested in, uh, she'll be sure to send it to me. Uh, So she found this fabulous article. It's called My Boner Killing Quest to Find the Worst Erotica on Amazon. (laughs) That was on Vice. Um, And so here's a quote for you. This is what I am trying not to do with my sex scenes. Although this is not penetration focused, so... And this is from Lipstick Lesbian Tales number one by Anonymous. I ate her musky patch with abandon, slobbering tongue over every centimeter of her flower. She ground her sex into my oral entry, gyrated her hips, fondled her tits, and rode my face like a cowgirl. Her wetness threatened to drown me. She became so drenched, she slid over my face like a skater on ice. So I'm guessing a, a 10-year-old boy wrote that. <laughs> I'm, I'm feeling that that was written by someone who had not actually had, um, had lesbian sex, or maybe sex of any kind whatsoever. No. <laughs> and I, I brought a couple uh, couple sex scenes from uh, from my work. If you want later on, I, I can share a little bit about that to illustrate some of the things that we're talking about here. Definitely. Now let's talk a little bit about the responsibility of other lesbian fiction authors to help straight women. Because frankly, I think that that's what we need to do. We need to help straight women have better sex. You know, this is ultimately who's gonna gonna benefit this this whole clitorate thing. Because I think most lesbians have, have decent sex from, from studies that I've seen. Okay, so as a lesbian fiction author who predominantly writes romance, and I'm not going to say only because you've written some thrillers as well and suspense, what would you say to other lesbian fiction romance authors? What can they do? You know, I don't fade to grey. Um, I honour every writer's right to to craft the scenes uh, as they see fit for their story and their narrative and their style. So even uh, Lipstick Lesbian Tales number one by Anonymous has a right to use such an array of metaphors and analogies all in one paragraph. But um, if I get to give advice, it would be uh, not to skip the sex scenes. This weekend, I'm going to be giving a lecture on writing sex scenes to the Golden Crown Literary Society Writing Academy. And I will tell, I hate fade to gray, especially in romance. Uh, the, The moment when the two characters make love or have sex is a moment of incredibly important plot development in a romance novel. And so not only does uh, Fading to Grey 
steal from the reader maybe the most emotional moment in this these characters' narrative, but it also means that we miss an opportunity to share the word about uh, clitoris-focused sex. And I might add that, um, of course, women enjoy penetration, and that's part of lesbian sexual experience as well. But I have read, um, and I can't think of any titles off the top of my head, but that I wouldn't call out my fellow authors anyways, stories that really seem to focus on penetration in a way that struck me as odd from a lesbian from a lesbian perspective, uh, writers who left the clitoris out of it, who almost felt like they had to replicate the heterosexual sex scene uh, just with two, women's and a, two women in a, in a strap-on. Nothing against strap-ons, absolutely nothing. But um, uh, I wanted to see more of that lesbian focus. And I, I think uh, one of the other things that Dr. Mintz said that I thought was really interesting was that there had been a big a surge of interest and education around women's bodies in the 70s. And she said that, um, that we've really lost that. She writes, uh, what troubles me is that much of this clitoral knowledge seems to have been lost to millennials. Most young women think they're abnormal if they don't reach orgasm during intercourse. Likewise, many men feel pressure to make their partners reach orgasm with their penis. So this uh, puts a lot of pressure on men, too. They're being asked to do a job that they are constantly failing at because they're using the wrong techniques. And so that becomes uh, fears about uh, having a larger penis or lasting longer, that they're suffering from this, too. Um, so I think just because this knowledge came into popular consumption in the 70s doesn't mean that young women are getting it. And in this era of porn, they're also seeing so much sexual content without actually learning about their bodies. Um, so that's something I, I feel really passionate about. I, I teach and most of my students are millennial or Gen Z. And um, that's also in the United States been recorded as the loneliest generation. There's uh, a survey I've got my uh, statistics here, the UCLA Loneliness Scale, which uh, you can take online if you want. And the questions are heartbreaking. Um, questions like, you know, I often feel like no one cares about me or often feel like um, people deliberately exclude me. And according to this survey, Young people in America right now are our loneliest demographic. So you've got a lonely demographic who've lost their parents' knowledge about sex, who are inundated with porn, um, and that's just a recipe for sexual dissatisfaction and sadness. You're listening to The Lesbian Talk Show. TheLesbianTalkShow.com, your hub of podcast information. So when I read your newsletter and your thoughts around sex and penetrative versus clitoral stimulation, the first thing that came to mind was I learned about lesbian sex entirely from reading lesbian fiction. I was young when I discovered lesbian fiction and it just changed my whole life. At school you learn about heterosexual sex and that really is not helpful at all when you're a lesbian. So I agree with you about the not fade to black and the fact that you can educate others through good examples in your writing. But how do we reach 
the readers that are not already reading Lesvik? How do we reach the women who need this stuff? That's, um, that's an excellent question and one that uh, I struggle with, especially as uh, the channels of communication are changing so quickly. I remember introducing some of my older friends and parents to Facebook and them saying, oh, it changes so much, it's so hard to navigate, and thinking to myself, no, it's not, you just like get on it and use it because it's Facebook. And uh, now I have this uh, absolutely wonderful young colleague who is passionate about Snapchat, and she got me on it, and I looked at it, and I said all the same things, but it's always changing, I can't tell. I think I just sent you a picture of my thumb. Um, so one of the challenges is that those channels of communication are uh, quickly changing, and they are the primary method of communication for this generation, which is part of that, that loneliness. Another challenge, I think, is that some of the designations that we grew up with, like lesbian or bisexual, don't resonate with young people. Um, they have a whole array of vocabulary to describe their experience, uh, both in terms of sexual attraction and gender identity at the same time as they are classifying themselves more and differently, I think there's also a, a great sense that, that they're much more fluid. This idea that I am a lesbian uh, may actually seem kind of strange and alienating to a, a younger audience. They, you know, today he's wearing a dress. Tomorrow he's going to you know, wear pants and a tie, and she's the same way, and she might be attracted to this person who doesn't identify as male or female. So I think the one thing I'm trying to be careful about in my upcoming romance is not holding on so tightly to the terms that I grew up with, but thinking more about the language and expression of the young people I'm writing about. That's an interesting point. This also becomes challenging, though, because when you're writing about gender-fluid characters or characters who don't necessarily identify as lesbian or bisexual, then you have to be up-to-date with what the terms are, what their identities are, how that would manifest. Yeah, and I personally um, never write about demographics that I don't belong to myself. I've been to conferences where I've sat on a panel, for example, of all white writers, and they said, you know, there's not enough representation of people of color in queer literature. We should all write black characters. And I'm thinking like, no, no, we should all support writers of color uh, and bring them into our community. But no, we should not go around like adding a black man just to be diverse or all of a sudden making one of our characters blind because we think there should be more disability awareness in, uh, in our literature. Uh, so I have never taken on the challenge of writing a protagonist who was genderqueer or trans uh, or a race other than my mine. But I want to make sure that my characters are living in a world where that is the reality of their community and their friends. It means, for one thing, uh, in my 
out in Portland series, uh, giving up my focus on the lesbian bar that was kind of the, the center of the first novel. I love lesbian bars. The one that that, um, the Mirage it was called, was modeled after, has since gone out of business. It broke my heart. Um, but had that idea of having a place where lesbians go, I think is becoming, at least in, in liberal cities like Portland, where the books are set, um, not so much a big deal for, for the younger communities. Uh, they're going where they want to go. And in a city like Portland, that could be anywhere. And so yeah, things like the Lesbian Community Center or the Lesbian Bar that I grew up with as really important features of my experience um, probably aren't, aren't as central to a lot of young queer people's lives. Although I say that with a caveat here in the United States, uh, someone living in Portland, Oregon is having an experience that is radically different from someone living in a smaller community in the middle of the country. I wrote, uh, forgive me if I told you this before, which is about a very anti-gay and violent time in the early 90s in Oregon. Um, you know, really a terrible period in our history. People were shot, people were firebombed, you know, the state was on fire with anti-gay sentiment. And that was when I was in high school and when I came out. I've had people write to me and say, Oregon in the early 90s, that's the reality I'm living right now in Mississippi or Arkansas or Texas. So uh, all these things I say with that, with that caveat, people are really experiencing uh, a lot of different eras here in the States right now. Okay. Um, are there any other points you want to add about the sex particularly? Oh, I'd love to read your sex scene. Go forth. All right. Let's see here. I cannot resist, uh, because I'm an English professor, throwing in a little piece of advice that I'm going to share with my students uh, this weekend as well about writing sex scenes. And uh, I, I, one of the things I ask my students to do is to take their sex scene and do a fine word to flip the names. Because a good, in a good sex scene, you should never be able to trade one character for the other. You know, if, if I have Judy on top and Barb on the bottom, and I can flip the names and have the sex scene make just as much sense, then I haven't done a good job because every character's experience of sex is going to be a little bit different based on who they are. Uh, and here's a, here's a little scene from my latest book, uh, Worth the Wait. And it's about a hardware store owner, Merritt, and uh, television star, Avery. And this is from Avery's perspective. And what I would ask my students to draw their attention to is the fact that we see Avery's sexual experience through the lens of her profession as a TV star. Merritt's body was swollen, beautiful, and complicated, and Avery wasn't sure she trusted herself to satisfy Merritt. Merritt made love to her like a woman who had practiced her part to perfection. Maybe she had read Dr. Bingo Sterling's book on Conolingus. Avery wasn't sure she remembered the lessons she'd learned at Powell's books, and none of her other lovers had taught her much. But a career in television had taught her a few things. If the scene doesn't play well, you change tactic. 
If you got it almost perfect, go again, go again, go again. You know when you got it right. Avery dipped her tongue deeper into Merritt's body, then kissed, sucked, and released her clit. Merritt gave a surprised, oh, then Avery shifted her kiss a little bit. There, Merritt said suddenly, harder, slower. Then, oh, faster, yes, God, yes. Her back arched, her hands clutched the sheets. Then she fell back. Yes, she sighed, as though she had lost a fight she hadn't wanted to win. Very cool. What have you just released? I've just released Worth the Weight, uh, that I just read from, from uh, published by the Forever Yours imprint of Grand Central. And it's about, uh, it's a second chance romance, a reality television star who was in love with her best friend in high school, but abandoned her uh, to pursue a television career, has come back to Portland, and she's met her, her lost love at their high school reunion. She's desperate to get back in touch with her, but Merritt, whose heart has been broken again and again, is determined to stay away. And they're just about to reconnect. Uh, Avery's just broken through Merritt's um, shell when they find out that the uh, apartment building that Merritt has been trying to buy, it's the building she grew up in and the only place where she's ever felt at home. She's just about to close on the deal and it means the world to her. Just then, uh, Avery's home remodeling television show sweeps in, buys the building out from underneath Merritt, and Merritt believes that Avery has uh, seduced her and slept with her simply to get information on the, the sale of this building, which isn't true, but it's enough to throw them into turmoil for another 100 pages or so. Creates a nice conflict. Okay. And if somebody's never read your work before, what should they start with? Ooh, um, if they're interested in the romance genre, I suppose I would have them start at the beginning of the Out in Portland series, which is something true. Uh, it is, I often joke, it is You've Got Mail, if you remember that movie, You've Got Mail with Lesbians. Uh, buildings seem to be my thing. My writing group and I are always joking about our thing. Like each one of us has this thing that we keep coming back to and coming back to. Uh, one of my, my writing partner's thing is women trying on other women's clothes in a creepy way. And she just shakes her head. She's like, why? Like I never try on women's clothes in a creepy way. Like no one's ever tried on my clothes in a creepy way. Why is this the thing that I gravitate towards? And my thing uh, apparently is buildings. So in, in this one, uh, something true, a real estate developer comes into town uh, and she's going to close down the coffee shop where the lonely barista works, but um, they fall in love. Long story short. Okay. And where can people find you online? Uh, you can find my, me at uh, CoreliaStetsWaters.com. And if you are popping on, I definitely encourage you to check out my blog. I'm really trying to focus on more sex content. Uh, so that's been a lot of fun. And hoping those folks from the Romance Writers of America, when they're reviewing my conference proposal, are going to go on the blog and be like, wow, she's super cool. And I've also got uh, a newsletter called Happily, which, uh, which you read and was the the seed for this interview and I hope folks will sign up for that too because it's really fun to stay in touch with 
with readers. You can write back to the newsletter so we can have a conversation. I, I just love to hear from people. Absolutely. And all the books we spoke about today, the links will be in the show notes. Camelia, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much. This is a pleasure. And I feel just a little bit more clitorate. Fantastic. This has been the Lesbian Review Podcast. You can find this and other awesome shows by searching for the Lesbian Talk Show anywhere you get your podcasts. We're even on Spotify now. Find more information on our guest in the show notes, as well as links to what we spoke about on this episode. And if you've enjoyed this podcast and want to see us creating more awesome content, then consider becoming a patron. Not only does this mean we can keep on doing this, but you will get exclusive podcasts that do not appear on the channel. You can find out all about it on patreon.com slash the lesbian talk show. The link is in the show notes. That's all for this episode. Bye.